Well, we're talking about the doctrine of Scripture. Last week we talked about revelation. Revelation. We talked first about the need for revelation because God is spirit, God is transcendent, and he needs to communicate to us so that we can know him. Can anybody remind me of the the two general categories of revelation we talked about last week? General? Yeah, good. General and special. And general is that revelation that is uh, through natural means to, to all people. It's the knowledge of God that everyone can see. Things like creation, for example. We see God's power. We see his creativity. We see his glory in creation. But we also need special revelation. And special revelation is that revelation which is supernatural. It's specific to individual people or circumstances. So things like visions and dreams, casting lots. God would speak say with an audible voice in the past um, through uh, his appearances in, in a theophany, like at the burning bush. Angels, uh, prophets, or miracles, and certainly in Christ, Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. And then, of course, the Bible, the Word of God, preserves many of those other special revelations and reveals further things that God would have us know about himself. And that's what this whole series is about, is how we know God through his book. But beyond the fact that God is a revelational God, that he reveals himself, we talked about the fact that he does that because he is a relational God. He's revelational because he's relational. He has created this revelation for us to get to know him, to know who he is, and to come into fellowship with him, especially through the gospel of his son, so that we might be in a relationship with him forever. So that's the, the doctrine of revelation. This week we'll talk about the doctrine of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration. And we hear the word inspiration used in a number of different ways. We might speak of poets, poets or artists or scientists, even athletes as being inspired. You might have heard uh, Thomas Edison saying that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And in this case, inspiration is sort of a higher plane of human achievement or someone who catapults you into that higher plane. But theologians use it in a more technical sense of scripture. In fact, one of the theologians I have read resists using the term inspiration or inspired of scripture because the words other meanings might confuse it. If we say that the scripture is inspired, we think, well, Shakespeare was inspired or some other person was inspired and it tends to instead of elevating scripture, it may lower it in some people's minds. And so we have to be very careful about how we define it. And really, the word is used so often, it's really impossible to avoid it, even though we could use perhaps a better term. Now let's talk first about the, the definition of inspiration. And the verse we usually go to when we talk about inspiration is Second Timothy 3.16. And many English translations say something like, all scripture is inspired by God. You probably have memorized that verse. Even back to Wycliffe's Bible in the 1380s. Some of you children remember the youth study the other day. We talked about Wycliffe, his Bible, in the 1380s. And William Tyndale's version from around 1522. Back to those early English translations of the scriptures, this verse is translated something like, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's interesting that when you look at English translations, the NIV, which generally is often the one of the lesser uh, literal translations is most literal. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. And that's exactly what the Greek term is in Second Timothy, Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. This word is theonoustos. Theo, you know that word meaning God. And noustos, which is used for breathed or for spirit and so forth. So it's breathed out by God. And this term breathed out by God, is used only in this verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. And the word's a picture of God speaking his word. Just as we can't speak without breathing, we consider our words as breathed out by us. In the same way, God's word is breathed out by him, by use of the men he He used to write scripture. So we, we breathe as we speak. God breathes out his word through man to give it to his people. J.I. Packer says this, Paul's words mean, that is in this verse, not that scripture is inspiring, true though that is, but that scripture is a divine product and must be approached 
and estimated as such. Now, note here that, technically speaking, it's the scriptures themselves that are inspired, not the writers themselves. And we might speak of the inspired writers. That's not necessarily to be avoided, but it's more accurate to say the scriptures are the things that are inspired. Um, God could speak through a donkey, couldn't he? God can speak through sinful men. God spoke through pagans. He spoke through Balaam. And yet we want to say it's that the product, this inspiration of Scripture, that, that is really what is inspired. A.A. Uh, A. Hodge said this about inspiration. The sacred writers were so influenced by the Holy Spirit that their writings are as a whole and in every part God's word to us. Let me repeat that. The sacred writers were so influenced by the Holy Spirit that their writings are as a whole and in every part God's word to us. So we can say that inspiration means that the, the words in our scriptures are the very words of God. Many times in the prophets especially we see, thus saith the Lord. Or look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, we won't read this whole section, but Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, listen to the, the terms used of God's word. David says here, it speaks of the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, verse 9, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. All these different terms are used of the word of God, and they come from the Lord. Psalm 119, I think you know this, we won't turn there, but that is 176 verses just chock full of descriptions of what God's word is, and using many different Hebrew words to talk about God's word, little nuanced words, synonyms, but focused on what God's word is and where it comes from. Another verse that indicates the source of this word, Romans 3.2, says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles or the utterances of God. So God speaks and he gave that word to the Israelites, to the Jews in the Old Testament, and it's given us the new as well. So inspiration refers to this breathing out of God in his word through human means to produce what he wants to give to his people. Now, I don't want to get too technical here, but just to understand some terms used to describe inspiration. And the first word is plenary. Plenary. The second is verbal. And we don't use the word plenary very much anymore, but the word plenary means full or complete. That is, every word of Scripture is God's word. We saw in Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's all Scripture. Some people want to say that, well, the, the inspired parts are the parts that deal with spiritual things, but when it comes to history or science or certain kinds of philosophy, it may be an error. It may not be inspired. It may just be man's word. But it's not just that Scripture that deals with spiritual issues is inspired. It's all Scripture is inspired by God. We don't have this sort of two-tiered inspiration in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And this idea that God's word is fully and completely in his word, and that all of God's word is inspired, goes against the grain of many so-called scholars for many centuries. You might remember some of you who have been here a long time. I did a series years ago on ancient heresies, and I talked about a man named Marcion. Marcion, this man lived not too long after Christ, about 85 to 160 A.D., some say his father was even a bishop, and he was, for a time, part of the church in Rome until he was excommunicated for heresy in 144. So again, just a few generations after Christ. And central to Marcion's teaching was that the Old and New Testament refers refer to different gods. So we have the Jehovah in the Old Testament. He's the just God. He's the creator and judge. He's evil and harsh. And we still get this day, don't we? We have the Old Testament God, who's, who's really kind of a mean guy. And then you have the God of the New Testament, who's the good God. He's the kind God, and he's greater than the just God. And this New Testament God is the one who sent Jesus as his messenger. And then Jesus passed this God's message on to the Twelve, 
And then these twelve failed in their mission, but Paul was the only faithful, reliable preacher of this message. And Marcion, because of his views of, of the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, and his views of the failure of the twelve and the success of, of Paul, he rejected the Old Testament, and so he wanted to make a radical separation between those testaments, as well as between Judaism and Christianity. And so he accepted as scripture only the Gospel of Luke and the epistles of Paul minus the pastorals, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And even these books were edited to delete references to the Old Testament and any connections with Judaism. So he wanted to separate Judaism, Christianity completely, Old New Testaments completely. For example, Marcion removed out of Luke the accounts of the birth of John the Baptist and Christ, as well as Christ's genealogy, to disconnect Christ Jesus from the Old Testament. So Tertullian, who was a church father later, he said, Marcion expressly and openly used the knife, not the pen, since he made such an excision of the scriptures as suited his own subject matter. You might have heard Thomas Jefferson did sort of the same thing, cutting out those parts of scripture he didn't really think were inspired. So this man, Marcion, just decades after Christ, taking the scriptures apart and deciding what he thought was really God's word. Now in more modern times, some of you may have heard of the Jesus Seminar. Anybody remember that? Some of you, you've been around a while. This is a group of scholars, so-called scholars, who came together starting in 1985 to determine what they thought was the truth about Jesus, thus the Jesus Seminar. And so they went through the Gospels and they examined hundreds of his sayings and they voted on what they thought were what Jesus really said. They had these different colored beads to just, to sort of vote on these things. So red beads mean that Jesus said it or something very like it. Pink means that Jesus said something like it. Gray beads means that Jesus didn't say it, but it communicates his ideas, and then black beads say that Jesus didn't say it. So you get these scholars with these different colored beads, and they all vote on these sayings. After the voting was finished and tallied, only 15 sayings of Jesus made the red cut. And they uh, had more than 75% approval as actually being from him. So beyond everybody voting on these things with the beads, you have to have it meet this threshold of three quarters to make the red cut. And there were 75 pink sayings, and the rest were gray or black. And after the smoke had cleared, about 80% of the teachings of Jesus were rejected as inauthentic. And they weren't done at this point. That was dealing with the sayings of Jesus, and they moved on to the deeds of Jesus. And believe it or not, these sages determined that Jesus was no miracle worker, and though he was crucified, he did not rise from the dead. Now you wonder why these guys even bother if they want to study the Bible. They've learned the languages, in most cases I expect. They've studied the Bible thoroughly, and yet they reject almost all of what Jesus said, and perhaps even more of what Jesus did, and gutted the heart of the gospel. And yet they, they thought this was a worthwhile exercise. And it's easy to laugh or perhaps get angry when we see this sort of blatant mistreatment of the Bible. But what about us today? Even Christians can deny the plenary or the whole complete inspiration of Scripture by just reading the parts we like or ignoring the parts that are difficult or to hit too close to home. So if you are doing your Bible in a year and you get stuck in Leviticus, that's that's still God's Word. You you can't just read John 3.16 every day. We don't preach John 3.16 every week here. We love John 3.16, but it's not the whole of the Bible. There are some difficult parts of the Bible. There are some, frankly, disgusting parts of the Bible because God shows his, shows sin in, in its ugliness. And we, we naturally recoil to see the sins, say, of, of David and many others in the Scriptures. And yet, it's God's Word, and we need to understand God's Word and know God's Word and not just take the stuff that we like and read the same verses over and over again, but understand God's Word from beginning to end. And so we can deny with our actions our belief in the, the plenary inspiration of Scripture if we don't want to understand the whole thing. Another term I mentioned before is verbal. So we have plenary meaning full or complete verbal. We say the term verbal to, to contrast with just thoughts. Some people will say that it's just the thoughts, the general ideas that are inspired, but it's actually the words themselves. Charles Spurgeon said this, We contend for every word of the Bible and believe in the verbal, literal inspiration of Holy Scripture. Indeed, we believe that there can be no other kind of inspiration. 
if the words are taken from us, the exact meaning is of itself lost. Now, you can't have the thoughts without the words, and the words are important, not just the thoughts. Look at Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah, we have a few verses in this great book talking about the very words of God. Jeremiah 1, verse 7. This is God commissioning Jeremiah. The Lord says to Jeremiah, in fact, let me go back to verse 5. The word comes to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. So it sounds somewhat like Moses, perhaps. I'm not a fit vessel for your words. But the Lord said to me, verse 7, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. So he was to speak all the words of God. Verse 9, The Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So God puts his words in Jeremiah's mouth, this prophet who is to come. Look at chapter 15, Jeremiah 15. Verse 19. God says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you will return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. And that, that term in Hebrew literally is, as my mouth. So the one who speaks for God is as God's mouth itself. Chapter 26, verse 2. Jeremiah 26, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I've commanded you to speak to them, do not omit a thought. So he says, don't omit a word. All the words from God are to be spoken by Jeremiah against this people especially against the king, those who are in leadership. <clears throat> Jeremiah 36, verse 2. <clears throat> Jeremiah 36, verse 2. The word came to Jeremiah, Take a scroll and write, it up, write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. So Jeremiah was to read this scroll or to write this scroll, rather, and to give it to the leadership. And when we see it later in Jeremiah 36, we won't have time to go through this, but the king, you might remember, receives this scroll, and what does he do with it? He cuts it into pieces and throws it in the fire. And does it mean he doesn't like parchment or whatever it was written on? No, it means that he's throwing away God's word. He's burning God's word. He's treating God's word as something to be burned, and to be cut up and burned, much like Marcion did centuries later. So to cut up the Bible is to invite God's wrath. And God judged the king for that. In fact, not only did he already have so many words against that king, because of what the king did, God added more to those prophecies, more judgments to the king and his people. So when we mistreat God's word, it's as though we're shaking our fist at God, we're mistreating God. So we need to believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. In fact, when you look at some of the ways the Old Testament is used in the New Testament, you see that Jesus and others viewed the words themselves as being from God. And out of many examples, we can look at Matthew 22, verse 32. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. Jesus says, he's quoting Exodus, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So when the scripture speaks, God speaks. And then verse 44, actually verse 43, Jesus says, responds to those who are speaking to him, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So this was the authority for Jesus Christ, David speaking by the Spirit in Psalm 110 from the Lord himself. So David speaks the words of the Lord by the Spirit of God.
So, plenary inspiration, whole or complete inspiration, verbal, meaning the words themselves, not just the thoughts. Let me make a few other points about the proper understanding of the doctrine of inspiration. First of all, it doesn't mean that it's just mechanical dictation. Some people think that that's what this means, is that God is just always speaking words, somebody writes it down like it's a transcription, and then we they, they publish it. But there are many occasions in which scripture writers were inspired. Sometimes God had his words directly dictated, like with Jeremiah we saw before, but other times he used various means. So look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 1, we'll read down through verse 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke, well, I'm sure he prayed to God as he wrote this, that this would be a blessing to Theophilus and others who would read it. He didn't say, God, write through me. God didn't uh, inspire Luke in this way to automatically write the words of the gospel. But Luke himself was kind of an investigative historian. He likely interviewed eyewitnesses. I think he probably knew Mary, the mother of Jesus. He says here he, he was investigating everything carefully. <clears throat> In fact, he himself was an eyewitness of some of the episodes of the book of Acts as well. So Luke either experienced or got stories from those who had experienced the things that he wrote down in his gospel. Now, Paul himself had a number of occasions for writing to various churches and individuals, and sometimes he had an amanuensis that is sort of a secretary, I had to look at Romans 16, verse 22. <clears throat> Romans 16, verse 22. It says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So if you want to uh, play a trivia game, you ask somebody who wrote the book of Hebrew or book of Romans. And what are they going to say? Paul. You say, well, no, it was actually Tertius who wrote the book of Romans. Paul dictated it, but Tertius actually wrote the letter. So... Um, I don't know if you can win a bet doing that. You probably shouldn't have bets and that sort of thing. But So Paul did not... Sometimes he wrote the letters himself. Sometimes he didn't actually physically make the letters with pen and ink. <clears throat> but Paul was inspired as this process occurred. <clears throat> it's also possible that Paul didn't just uh, speak uh, from beginning to end these exact words. He may have had a... maybe written an outline... Uh, had a few thoughts. Maybe he discussed wording and organization with his amanuensis. Maybe he could, could ask Tertius, or later Peter might talk to Sylvanus, his his secretary. What do you think is a good way to word this or to organize my thoughts? That's certainly part of the. It could be part of the inspiration process. One other interesting circumstance I think is in Jude. Jude. We have Jude who. There's the brother of Christ who wants to write about something else. But it says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So I would love to read a letter from Jude about salvation, but we don't have that today. He was... sovereignly, providentially blocked from writing about salvation to write about something that was, uh, in God's providence, more important for him to write about and was actually inspired to write this little letter of Jude against false teachers. So, despite these various circumstances, the men who wrote these words wrote what God wanted and what they wanted. So first of all, inspiration does not refer to mechanical dictation. Secondly, God generally used the style and vocabulary of the authors as a way of expressing God's own thoughts. So we see variations in the style between very erudite men like Luke and Paul and the more simple constructions of John, 
So, but God can still use men of higher or lower education, uh, writing ability, personality, the differences. All those things come through in the words of God as he inspires them, but they're still God's word. Uh, Louis Burkhoff wrote this, God used the writers of scripture just as they were with their character and temperament, their gifts and talents, their education and culture, their vocabulary, diction, and style. He illumined their minds, prompted them to write, repressed the influence of sin on their literary activity, and guided them in an organic way in the choice of their words and in the expression of their thoughts. A third point is that only the original writings were inspired. And we know that some corruptions have occurred in the centuries since the Bible was written, and we don't have the originals. But we do have many ancient copies of scriptures, and we can have a high degree of confidence that the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts we possess are very close to the originals. That's beyond the scope of what we're doing today. talk about that, but we will in the future, about how God preserves his word. Another important point is to remember that all scripture is inspired. I mentioned that earlier, but remember, all scripture is inspired. So one portion of scripture is not more inspired than the other. So if you flip around your Bible, put your finger down, you say, that's inspired. You flip to something that you might know better or maybe it's more meaningful to you, find your favorite verse, that's as inspired as the other. And we may have some passages that are of more spiritual benefit to us than others, but it's all God's word. And that's why I have a, a problem with red-letter Bibles. I have a red-letter Bible here. That's just what they had. But just because Jesus said something doesn't mean it's any more Scripture, right? When G- what Jesus taught, what Moses, David, and Paul taught, what James, Jude, and John taught are all what, who taught? What God taught. That's right. And just because Jesus said something doesn't mean that we don't need to study to understand exactly what he was trying to say. Just because I can read the red letters doesn't mean I understand what he's saying anyway. And some people are guilty of this red letterism. If somebody is always talking about what Jesus said and never mentions what Paul says about certain things, that, that could be a red flag to you. They're focusing on what they, they see as as the red letters as being more inspired, perhaps, than what the others might say. So certain issues of the day that Jesus didn't spend much time talking about, but Paul does, they'll say, well, Jesus didn't say much about that. That may be true, but did Paul say something about it? Was Paul not inspired by God to write his word? What about Peter, James, John? Does, do they say anything about this? Does Moses say something about this? If so, we need to take that all into account and not just focus on what Jesus says, as important as that is. Often these these kinds of people will look through the Gospels something for something Jesus said, and they'll take it out of context, and they'll misapply it. Or they'll set Jesus against Paul, or another scripture writer, as though they are at odds. But if it's all God's word, Jesus' words properly understood will never contradict another writer properly understood. So Jesus does not contradict Paul. Paul doesn't contradict Moses. Uh, James doesn't contradict Jude. So keep that in mind as well. All scripture is inspired. We want to understand it in its wholeness. Well, that's, in brief, the definition of inspiration. Let's look now at the defense of inspiration. The defense of inspiration. So it's one thing to say it's inspired. How do we defend that from Scripture itself? And here's where I go back to what did Jesus believe about the nature of Scripture? Jesus is God in human flesh. What did Jesus think about the Scripture? And as we read the Gospels, that was the authority to which he appealed time and time again. Matthew chapter 4. You can know this well. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is approached by the devil to be tempted. Three times he's tempted, at least three written here. And every time Jesus says, he responds by by quoting the word of God. So the tempter comes, verse 4, Jesus answers and says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Verse 7, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. At the end, he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus could have, when he was tempted, he could have rebuked the devil with his own words. He could have winked the devil out of existence. He had the power to do that if he wanted to, if the Father wanted him to do that. But when Jesus faced temptation, he responded to it with Scripture, just as 
we ought to as well. So God's word is powerful enough to both help us in temptation, but also to rebuke Satan himself. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is talking about divorce. Jesus answered and said to these Pharisees, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So God speaks through his word. Jesus uses that quotation from Genesis 2, wanted to to rebuke these these Pharisees and tell them what what the truth is about marriage. Turn over to the Gospel of Mark. Again, we're looking at what Jesus views Scripture as and how he uses it. Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verse 9. Jesus, again, is confronting the Pharisees. He says, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Verse 13, we're not looking at this whole passage, but just see how Jesus refers to God's word. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. So verse 9 it's the commandment of God. And yet, verse 10, Moses said it. So, are the, the Ten Commandments Moses' words? Yes. Yes. Moses said it and his, when he wrote it down, but they're really God's words. In fact, it's God's commandment. So, God's commandment, verse 9, God's word, verse 13, but Moses said it as well. So, it's a, it's a human and divine work but it is God's word. And when you set it aside, what are you setting aside? You're setting God, God, his word, his commandments. In this case, for their own human traditions. Let me also just read to you Luke 16, verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So Hebrew had little, little curly cues, might say it like we might say a seraph on our... Our, our letters today, those little strokes of the letter of the law are so important that they will not fail. They will, uh, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away. So we must hold on firm to the word of God. Uh, Luke 24, again, looking at Jesus' view of the scriptures. Luke 24, 25 to 27. And ask yourself, does Jesus see any unimportant parts of the Old Testament? Of course, that was his scriptures at the time. Is there anything that Jesus thinks, well, we can ignore that? Or does he have a, a plenary view of inspiration? Well, this is after Jesus is raised and he's walking with disciples to Emmaus. And Jesus says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus gave a summary of the Old Testament in this fairly short walk to these disciples as these prophets related what was going to come in the person of the Christ. Verse 45, 44 and 45. Jesus is speaking later. He said to them, these disciples, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you about all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and so forth. So Jesus based his his ministry, his, his words, Certainly he had his own power as the Son of God, but he also founded what he said on the Scriptures. Jesus didn't contradict the Scriptures with what he was saying. There wasn't a 
the dichotomy sometimes have between Judaism and Christianity in, in Jesus' mind. Jesus is a fulfillment of all that God promised in the Old Testament, and the, the Old Testament speaks of him. And so when Jesus speaks of who he who he was, he relies on the scriptures, the words of God, to support those assertions. Jesus also says in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. And then John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in their truth, your word is truth. So when Jesus talks about the Old Testament, it's with a great reverence. It's, it's, uh, it's powerful to protect you from temptation, it lasts forever. They will not. God's word won't pass away. When the Old Testament speaks, God speaks. When the Old Testament commands, God commands. When the Scripture speaks, it must be fulfilled. All these things Jesus believed about the Old Testament. So, who's the one who believes the most in the inspiration of the Scriptures? It's Jesus Himself. And so, if we deny the inspiration of the Word of God, then we're running up against what Jesus himself said. The apostles also believed in inspiration, that it was God's word. We'll try and go through these fairly quickly, but look at Acts chapter 1. And we're not looking so much at what's being said, but the the worldview, perhaps, or, or the idea of what the, the apostles thought about Scripture, how it's revealed in the way they speak about it. So Acts chapter 1. Verse 16, they're trying to figure out what to do about the space they have in the 12 that Judas has killed himself. That brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So there's the scripture, and it must be fulfilled. David spoke, but it was by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Peter says, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So that's Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. God speaks by the Holy Spirit through David, the king and the prophet, and it must be fulfilled. So these men must, in their own time, fulfill these scriptures. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, again we see the Holy Spirit speaking Verse 24, and it says this, they heard this, um, they lifted their voices to God and with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? That's Psalm 2. And so these people, again, acknowledge that Psalm 2 was by the mouth, or by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. It is God's word. The Holy Spirit spoke through David. Later, in Acts 24, we're skipping some here, but Acts 24, verse 14. Now, Paul is speaking here. He says, This I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and what is written in the prophets. So Paul believes the Old Testament scriptures. He believes all of it. And then the last chapter of Acts, 28, verse 25. It says, They did not agree with one another, but they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And then he quotes Isaiah 6. So the Holy Spirit, again, speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the fathers. So when the prophets speak, God speaks by his Holy Spirit. Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 17. This is an interesting way that Paul Paul phrases this talking about God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. But it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up. And so, scripture here is personified as if God himself was speaking. So when God speaks to Pharaoh through Moses, Paul can just as easily say, The scripture says this to Pharaoh. 
And Paul says something similar in Galatians 3.8, that the scripture speaks when God speaks. A couple more here, outside of the writings of Paul. Hebrews 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. We just saw this recently in our study of Hebrews. And again, we won't read this whole section. But here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95 at some length. But he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts. So, we have a human writer for Psalm 95. But when the human writer writes Psalm 95, who is speaking? The Holy Spirit is speaking in those psalms. The psalmist says it, and the Spirit says it. Two more passages, this time from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we have these prophets in the Old Testament understood to a a limited extent what the salvation was. They wanted to know what person or time, verse 11, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. So we have the Spirit... The Holy Spirit, we see in the book of Acts from Romans. Here it's the Holy the Spirit of Christ, the same person of the Trinity, indicating things through how he inspired the Old Testament prophets. Now, while the Old Testament prophets wrote these things, they didn't understand all of them because they had to look through a glass darkly, you could say. They didn't have the, the full understanding that we, we get now as, as Christ has come. So the Spirit of Christ works through the prophets in the Old Testament, but also verse 12 says that these things were preached to you, the gospel was preached by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is involved in the inspiration of the Old Testament. He's also involved in the proclamation of the gospel in the New. Turn over a page or two to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. And Peter here is remembering in previous verses when he saw on the mountain when Jesus is is transfigured before them and he sees uh, Moses and Elijah. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Verse 19 says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart's. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one owns interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So these prophets speak, and not from their own wills, not from their own mouths, their own hearts, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Now we focused mostly on the Old Testament because that was the scriptures at the time that the prophets were writing when Jesus was was living here and so forth. But what about the New Testament? Well, there's an interesting passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And note that this is relatively late in Paul's life. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now the first part of verse 18, Paul says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy. But what's the quotation at the end of verse 18? It's an Old Testament, you might have a cross-reference in your Bible. Is that cross-reference back to uh, Old Testament? It, the quotation is actually from Luke, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus said that, the laborer is worthy of his wages. There are statements like that in the Old Testament, but this actual quotation, the laborer is worthy of his wages, is from the Gospel of Luke. And so you could say that Paul here is linking the Old Testament scripture 
with the New Testament scripture, then they're both God's word. They're both scripture. And then one last verse here on this topic of the inspiration of the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.16. 2 Peter 3.16. Here Peter is speaking of Paul in the previous verse. According to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. And so here we have these false teachers twisting the scriptures, but they're also twisting Paul's words, which are the rest of the scriptures. So even Peter, at this time, saw at least some of Paul's letters as scriptures, as those that are uh, given from God, these sacred writings. Any questions so far? I know we're just about out of time. Yes, and well, when Paul talks about the Lord, it's usually talking about Jesus. And so in that case, he's talking about things that Jesus didn't address in his ministry, but Paul did. So actually that strengthens what we're saying here, is that Jesus said some things, but Jesus didn't say everything. Paul says some things that Jesus didn't say, but Paul's word is also God's word to the Corinthians in that case. So, he wasn't, he was contrasting himself with Jesus, but he wasn't, uh, not, not in a negative sense. He wasn't saying that. I'm saying something that contradicts what Jesus said. He just says more than what Jesus said. But it was also uh, done by God's inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting that the word breath or the word pneuma can mean breath, can mean spirit. Yeah, so when we speak, we, we, we breathe as we, we speak words, but God, in a sense, breathes as he speaks out his word. But also the, the word for spirit is the same as word for breath. So we have that kind of connection, I think, as well. The idea that the spirit of God is, is kind of like a breath in, in that sense. Um, it's, it's an analogy, I think, but uh, it's a way of God speaking through his, his breath. If, if God, God doesn't have a body, of course, but... In, in a figurative sense, it's the way God breathes out his word to us. The Hebrew word is ruach, um, but the, the word in, in Greek is pneuma. It's a word used for Holy Spirit, the Spirit and Holy Spirit and so forth. Yeah, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Secret things belong to the Lord our God is one that we have to lean on lots of times when there's there's stuff that just doesn't make sense to us. We say, well, if I can't find it in His Word, I don't need to know it, and so I can rest on His His Word. And maybe someday He'll let us know. Maybe He won't. But in any case, the God of the earth will do right.
That's right. Yeah, he he had that high view of scripture. Right. He's he's building on the scripture, not not knocking it down. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. Well, let's wrap things up quickly, real quickly, for some lessons here. First of all, if the Bible's word of God, we must believe it, and we must desire it, we must understand it, and we must obey it. We don't have time to look through all these verses, but first of all, we must believe it. We must believe in Jesus as Savior. We need to believe the word is from God. We must believe God's word. We must believe the Bible if it is inspired. Second, we must desire the Bible. Remember 1 Peter 2, 2. It says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Next, we must understand the Bible. We must have the Spirit of God to understand the word. We talked about this last week. We can't just look at the, the letters and and say that that's enough. We must have God's Spirit in us to help us understand what his word says. But we must be diligent as well. Diligent, as we see in Second Timothy, Timothy 2.15, Timothy must be diligent in the scriptures. We must as well. And then finally, we must obey the Bible. We must obey the Bible. If something is a word of man only, I can take it or leave it. But if a word is from God, it has authority, and I'd better listen to it and follow it. We know James 1, 22 and 25, warns us about being those who are just hearers. We must be those who are doers of the word. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us without a testimony, that we're not just groping in the darkness to find you, but you have revealed yourself to us in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for illuminating the gospel to us and all of your word. May we truly live as we say we believe about the truthfulness of scripture, about the inspiration of scripture. May we live in a way that honors you and elevates your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.